Well, it's good to uh, have you all with us tonight, and uh, glad you could make this extra uh, Zoom uh, session uh, as we think again about the, the cross of the Lord Jesus and, and what we learn from that. And so I thought we would begin tonight with uh, the hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. before the Lord and pray together. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to think about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord God, for its power. We thank you, Lord God, for the blood that was shed that is able to cleanse from all iniquity. And we pray, Lord God, that you might guide us, guard our steps, and keep us looking only unto Jesus. We pray, Holy Father, that you would continue to give us comfort and strength in the midst of trial and affliction. And we pray that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, that in everything we would find in him our all in all. So thank you, Lord God, that we have the opportunity to think of these things tonight. And we pray for grace and strength that we might truly be confident because of your great love. Thank you for the wonders of redeeming love. Help us to understand it more. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. I want to read tonight from Romans chapter 5, uh, I think a fairly familiar uh, passage, but um, sorry, I forgot to unmute. You missed all of that, didn't you? Yes. You can hear me now? Good. All right. Well, I want to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, therefore, he's working out the implications of the gospel that he has spelled out in the first four chapters. And so he begins another four chapters of 
<coughs> excuse me, of implications from that gospel. And so he writes, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Well, again, let's pray together as we look into the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the love that it manifests. We thank you, Holy Father, that our salvation depends upon what you have done and why you have done it. We thank you that we are justified by faith, not by works. And we praise you, Lord God, that this means that even the trials and afflictions that come into our lives are used by your purposes for your glory. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to delight in the things of Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we talk about the cross, as we think about what happened there, and especially as we consider your redeeming love, we pray, Holy Father, that you would indeed help us to learn and to understand the things of Christ. So, Father, direct our thoughts, we pray, and keep us in your care. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. We want to uh, think a little bit tonight uh, along the, the lines of what we have been thinking about on these uh, special times on the first Sunday of the month when we've been focusing on the cross. Uh, and uh, the last two or three times we've thought about how the Exodus, uh, if you're able to listen on Sermon Audio or on the CDs, we've been looking at uh, some themes from Exodus, how the Exodus helps us to understand our own redemption, what happened through Christ on the cross. Many years ago, I was asked to speak on uh, the Exodus at the Cary Conference, and unusually for things like that, I was given almost a full year's notice. And so I, as I was reading through the Bible, I began to look at uh, a number of, of texts that, that deal with the Exodus. The theme keeps coming up again and again. And it became clear that the Exodus was a pivotal event in their history. In fact, we might say that it was the defining event of Israel, something like the American Revolution would be for uh, the United States. And it defined Israel forever as the people of God, that is, as the redeemed people. They were a people who were never supposed to think of themselves as great in themselves, even during days like David and Solomon, when they were particularly uh, a mighty nation. But they were always a people redeemed by the Lord. They were not a great people, but a people with a great God. Uh, as others have put it. Even when God gives them their laws, it keeps reflecting on the fact that they were in the land of Egypt. They're to treat their slaves a certain way because they themselves were slaves in Egypt. 
when God sets up their worship with various feast days uh, and so on, those very feast days are rooted in the events of the Exodus in the wilderness for the most part. So now we come to think about this as Christians, as those who are seeking to understand their own redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the Exodus, we begin to understand Romans 5 verse 8, that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When introducing the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, the Lord introduces himself as the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And, and so as we think about Romans 5 verse 8 and then how this relates to the Exodus, what comes to the fore particularly that I want to think about tonight is the love of God that is proven, that is demonstrated, that is commended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so the first thing, two things I want to do tonight primarily, the first one is to think about the appearance of God's love, what we learn about God's love from the Old Testament, uh, the Exodus itself, and then how the rest of the Old Testament uh, deals with the Exodus. And then the second thing we want to do is to look at uh, a number of the uh, implications for Christians, how the New Testament draws on those same themes uh, for uh, our benefit. And so first of all, we think about God's love as it appeared. And the first thing to underline is that God's love is redeeming love. Back in Exodus 15 that we looked at a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, in verse 11, this is the song of, of Moses that he leads the children of Israel in singing right after they've come through the, uh, the Red Sea and are safe. Uh, Moses teaches this song, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretched out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them up. Thou in thy mercy hath led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. They are a redeemed people. <clears throat> a little bit farther on, he talks about them as the people whom thou hast purchased. This is the redemption that is found in Christ alone. In keeping with that theme, in Deuteronomy 7, as Moses gets to the end of his life and is reflecting back on those events, this is how he sees it. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. And because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. These verses remind us that one of the obvious aims of God in the Exodus is to make himself known. He is to make himself known to both Israel and Egypt. They need to know when he's done that he is God. Now, how Israel and Egypt know him as God is not exactly the same. For Egypt, they know him as the unstoppable God who's going to carry out his plans and not even Pharaoh can stop him. He's the holy judge before whom even Pharaoh will fall. Israel needs to know all that. But they're also going to learn the lesson of these texts that I read to you, that their redemption was in no way based on their merit, but because God keeps his covenant. By doing that, he demonstrated his love and faithfulness. There's all kinds of evidence, of course, in the Old Testament that Israel didn't deserve to be redeemed any more than Egypt did. They lived amongst them. They thought like them. 
but the Lord loved them, and for his reasons, he saved them. At the time, the people were so discouraged, they couldn't imagine anyone who could break Pharaoh's power. Notice how quickly they turned on Moses when things first got worse before they got better. They were too weak to save themselves. They were too sinful to have any claim on God's attention. And yet, they were redeemed. It was God's plan, God's lamb, God's power that saved them. So God's love has uh, appeared as redeeming love. I want to take you to the other end of the Old Testament, to the little prophet Hosea. And we learn from Hosea that God's love appeared as rebuking love. Hosea lived in that period that was rich with prophets. Uh, the kings of the time were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. In the southern kingdom, uh, ruled by the line of David, you had Isaiah and Micah as prophets. In the northern kingdom, you had prophets like Jonah and Amos and, of course, Hosea. And they were serving in the dying days of that kingdom. Like most of the prophets, Hosea has a strong flavor of a, a court case. Uh, the prophets were God's prosecuting attorneys. They would represent the law of God and they would challenge the people in those areas where they had fallen short. And, and so Hosea is charged with making it clear that the crimes of Israel were ultimately crimes against love. Love that had been demonstrated in the Exodus and in the way God kept them in the wilderness. Hosea refers to them as my loved ones, my people. But of course, the problem is that they refuse to acknowledge God. In Hosea 2 verse 8, for example, she, speaking of uh, Israel, she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they had prepared uh, for Baal. They are using the things God gives them for their, uh, their idols. Uh, over in chapter 9, in verse 10 uh, of Hosea, he says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor, an incident described in Numbers 25, and separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. God had redeemed them in his astounding love, but they did not respond in kind. In Hosea 13, verses 4, 5, and 6, you have another example. I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me. There is no Savior beside me. I did know thee in the wilderness and in the land of, of great drought. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. They were rescued, but they refused to acknowledge the Lord. And so in a number of passages, Hosea outlines what the judgment will be. He will, in chapter 8, verse 13, he will remember their iniquity and visit their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel hath forgotten his maker. They have turned their backs on God, and so God will send them back to Egypt. Uh, they shall eat unclean things in Assyria, according to chapter 9 and verse 3. Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And then he describes how he, he raised this child and drew them with the bands of love. But then they abandoned the, the Lord. They turned their backs on him. And so the judgment is going to fall because of this crime against love. 
And yet, at the same time, that's the reason they can have hope, because it is God who is at work. And so Hosea includes a number of comments uh, on that line as well. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. He will not let them go. Chapter 2, verse 14, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. God will restore them. Now, that theme about God restoring his people is also found in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is somewhat later than Hosea, but he lives in the dying days of the southern kingdom. Chapter 31 is a very important chapter in Jeremiah. It includes the promise of the new covenant. But at the beginning of the chapter, uh, listen to what the Lord says. This is just at the part of Jeremiah where he's starting to talk about the return from the captivity. Up to chapter 29, he's talking about the captivity, and now he's starting to talk about how he will restore them. And it says, at the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause them rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And so this everlasting love is at work. God did not save them in the first place because they were worthy. That's what we saw in the Exodus. And so the plan does not crash and burn now that they've proved themselves to be unworthy. The foundation of hope, once again, is not on our merit, but on God's sovereign love. That's why these texts are so important to Christians because they are pointing in the direction of hope. Out of Hosea, for example, we have quotations like that of Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. It's applied in Matthew 2 to the birth of the Lord Jesus, how he fled into Egypt and was brought back. Even the great statement in 1 Corinthians 15 about death having lost its sting comes from Hosea. Those who were not my people and not having mercy, becoming my people and having mercy is also from Hosea, quoted by Paul in Romans 9, and Peter in 1 Peter 2. And of course, Jeremiah 31, as I mentioned, is the great new covenant promise. And, and so the Old Testament is preparing us to understand God's love commended toward us in Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It lays the foundation for realizing why it can be true that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So with that, what do we learn about the applications of God's love? What are the lessons that should flow out of this as we think about the cross of Christ, as we think about the love that was demonstrated there? First of all, the first application is that arrogance is to be eliminated. I, I read to you from Deuteronomy 7 a little bit earlier uh, that, that God loved them because he loved them. And that's the reason he set them free. And that's part of a string of chapters that are underlining that their redemption is based on the love of God and their response is to love God with all their heart. In Deuteronomy 7 that I read to you, it is God's love, not ours. That's the basis of salvation. In Deuteronomy 8, they are warned that God's gifts might be abused by thinking that it means they are self-sufficient. They don't need to rely on God anymore now that they are rich. In Deuteronomy 9, they're warned about thinking of themselves as being righteous 
in themselves. Faithful living is never helped when we forget where we came from. We need to understand that the foundation of our faith is by grace alone. I've often mentioned how Paul seems to have a special love for Jeremiah 9, where the prophet said, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He quotes it two or three times directly and alludes to it uh, a number of other times. It's central to what the apostle wants us to understand about grace, that it means that there are no grounds for our boasting. Perhaps the text that's best known along this line is from Ephesians 2. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship. When we think about the gospel and when we think about grace, our response never should be, well, I'm worth it. Our response should be, as the hymn writer put it, that we are lost in wonder, love, and praise. Like Israel, we are called out from a position of being thoroughgoing members of the world. We were not people who were naturally righteous. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Remember 1 John 4? He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. A statement, incidentally, very similar to Romans 5, verse 8. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, how do we know this? Well, we know this because of the cross. As Romans 5 says, God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John goes on to apply that, of course, to the way that we ought to love one another, not just our friends, but our enemies, because we are those who are redeemed by the love of God. We are defined by our exodus the same way Israel was defined by God bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So the first application of God's redeeming love is that arrogance is eliminated, that no one should boast. The second application that I wanted to draw is based on what we saw from Hosea, that our spiritual adultery is being exposed. Hosea is one of a number of examples in the Old Testament where the theme is idolatry as adultery. In other words, it underlines the element of unfaithfulness. Idolatry in the Old Testament is roundly condemned, of course. It's condemned on a number of, of bases. For one thing, it's foolishness. An idol is nothing. To trust an idol is ridiculous because the idol has no eyes to see, no hands to do anything, no feet to move, and so it is foolish. Isaiah has several devastating critiques along this line. Uh, Jeremiah begins his uh, prophecy by asking the question, why do you leave the fountain of living water for broken cisterns? And so the Old Testament regularly condemns idolatry as foolish. But that's not Hosea's point. Hosea's point is that idolatry is not only foolish, it is wickedly self-centered and ungrateful. The Lord loved them. He poured out lavish blessings on them. Hosea talks about God giving them riches and jewels and fine clothes. Nothing was too good for his beloved. And then they turned them into the tools of the prostitution trade, longing for their idols. 
Hosea's point is that they deserve to be divorced from God for their unfaithfulness. But here is where the overwhelmingly astounding love of God comes in. Hosea goes and gets his wife back from prostitution in the same way that God comes to save his people and to restore them. No wonder throughout the Old Testament we are continually asked, who is a God like this? Who loves like this God? Or as Micah puts it, who is a pardoning God like thee? We need to understand who truly loves us and cares for us. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, was arguing with Peter and some others who were missing the point, at, for the moment anyway, about being justified by faith alone. And he concludes his argument with these words in verse 20 of Galatians 2. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's understanding of the gospel is ultimately rooted in the fact that God loves me. That it's not just a, 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 a theology in terms of a, a, a philosophy, in terms of ways of thinking, but it's rooted ultimately in the love of God, the same way the Exodus was. God delivered them because he keeps his promise. He doesn't lie. God delivered them because he set his love upon them. He loved me and gave himself for me. The life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And as he puts it at the end of the letter in Galatians six fourteen, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. My boast is not in anything in myself. My boast is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder the hymn writer wrote, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain, I, I willingly take my stand. And then the third application I wanted to make comes from what we looked at in Jeremiah 31, that we have been loved with an everlasting love. And here is where the text I read to you from Romans 5 comes back into our, our vision. In Romans 5, verse 5, Paul is working out the implications of this justification by faith alone, even in the midst of trial and affliction. And he concludes with this statement, hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Along the way, there are trials. Along the way, we experience these sufferings and these challenges. But the Lord loved us. And this hope that we place in the Lord will never make us ashamed. We're taken back into the past, as he explains here, that we were without strength. And by saying that, he's saying that we were in bondage. We were unable to get free. We were ungodly, that is, we weren't particularly interested in being set free, at least not from sin itself, even if we'd like to escape the consequences. We were sinners, actively engaged in breaking the law of God. We were enemies, actively opposed to God himself. It's while we were in that condition that Christ died for us. When we stand at the foot of the cross, we see many things. The brutality of man's inhumanity, the jeers of God's enemies, thinking that they've won the upper hand, the horror of judgment on sin. Even Jesus is not spared when he is identified with our sins. 
But we also see some other things, don't we? We see, as John explains in his gospel, the glory of God. Here is an astonishing work of grace, an astonishing salvation of the God who keeps his promises. We see the love of God on full display. John 13, verse 1, just before it describes Jesus washing the disciples' feet the night that he's arrested, makes this point. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them unto the end. He showed them the full extent of that amazing divine love. And so that leads to assurance. Like Jeremiah said, we have hope, we have confidence because we've been loved with an everlasting love. As much as we are sinful, as much as we often play the fool and turn away from God, like Hosea explained, our hope is in the Lord who is constant, who is faithful, who sent his son to die for sinners like us that we might be set free. And then Paul makes this interesting observation. If we were reconciled to God when we were his enemies, what will be the case for us now that we are made friends in Christ? We have been loved with everlasting love. Well, may God help us look to the cross and see there how God commendeth his love toward us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the amazing grace of our God. We thank you, Lord God, for the ways that you show us Christ and his love. We thank you, Holy Father, that you accomplish these things for your good, for your glory. And we thank you that you are the God who never fails. You finish what you start. You keep your promises. Thank you, Lord God, that we too, in the Lord Jesus Christ, can begin to know what it is like to be loved with everlasting love. The Lord knows those who are his, and so we put our trust in you alone. Thank you, Holy Father. May we think much about the redeeming love demonstrated in our salvation. We thank you for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. I have uh, uh, another hymn for you here. Uh, this one is maybe not as familiar. Uh, we have sung it here before. It's not in our book. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a great hymn on the theme that we've been looking at uh, tonight. Here is love, vast as an ocean. Let us all your love accepting, love 
again, we thank you for uh, joining us for this time tonight. So let's bow again in prayer uh, as we uh, consider these things. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace, for your redeeming love. And we pray, Holy Father, that we would understand that there is nothing we desire on earth besides you. There is no one we have in heaven except you. And thank you, Lord God, that having Christ, we learn that he is our all and all. O Lord, like countless others, we may suffer the loss of all things. But if we have Christ, we are satisfied. We are kept and we have hope that will never make ashamed. May it be so as we consider the love of God demonstrated in Christ when he died for us, even though we were sinners. Thank you for such love. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.